0: It's Monday, March 2nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A woman in Georgia is crying foul, saying that police detectives lied to her in order to obtain her DNA. Police then use that DNA and the relatively new investigative technique of genetic genealogy to match her son to a cold case murder. Asking innocent people to voluntarily provide their DNA is known as target testing. And when this case goes to trial in June, it could be the first to explore how police conduct investigations using genetic genealogy. John Shupi, reporter for NBC News Digital, joins us for how once again the use of genetic genealogy by police is being questioned. Next, more cases of COVID-19 are popping up in the U.S. as authorities were also investigating a possible wider spread in Washington state after the first recorded death there. Vice President Mike Pence tried to put Americans at ease over the weekend but did acknowledge we could see more cases. Joe Biden scored a huge win in South Carolina, giving him the momentum heading into Super Tuesday. Still, Bernie Sanders leads the delicate count for now. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to break it all down. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: And they said they had a reason to believe because they'd been doing some research on DNA and building a family tree using genetic genealogy that the deceased person was somehow related to miss holmes or mr holmes and they asked for the dna and thinking that and wondering about any distant relatives who she had in orlando and had lost touch with eleanor holmes said yes and gave the dna thinking that's what it was going to be used for
0: joining us now is john Shoopy, reporter at nbc news digital thanks for joining us john my pleasure We're going to talk about another story that's involved in this whole genetic genealogy using DNA to map out genetic family trees in the hope to solve a lot of cold cases and crimes, murders, sexual assaults. This method has been used in a lot of these different scenarios. This latest story, John, that you wrote about concerns Eleanor Holmes and her son, Benjamin Holmes Jr., basically police went up to her and they said, hey, we need your help in solving a crime, somebody that might have been murdered in her family. Can we obtain some of your DNA? And then days later, her son was arrested and charged with murder. And uh, Eleanor and her family felt like they had been lied to, that the police obtained their DNA under false pretenses. John, tell us a little bit about this story.
1: Well, what's interesting about this is there's been so much, as you mentioned, attention on genetic genealogy and the very large impact it has and a lot of amazing results that this technique that's only only really two years old has had. Hundreds of cases have been solved, old rapes and murders, like you said. But there hasn't been a lot of scrutiny about how these investigations are performed. Only three of the cases have gone to trial, some of them not even really getting into how it's used. And what I sought to do in this story was to shine a little light upon one aspect of how they collect this DNA. Genetic genealogy is a method of last resort when all of our investigative techniques have basically failed and target testing this process of collecting DNA from innocent people who are somewhere on the family tree of an unknown suspect, that is a tactic of last resort within this method of last resort. And the story seeks to raise some questions about at one point Is it not okay to take people's DNA voluntarily, especially if you're doing it under, like you said, false pretenses?
0: So what happened in the case of Eleanor Holmes when detectives showed up to her house and asked her for some DNA?
1: Eleanor Holmes and her husband, Benjamin Holmes Sr., said they showed up unannounced. Two detectives showed up unannounced in October of 2018 and said that they they were friendly and businesslike, and professional and said introduced themselves as being from Orlando. And they said that they were looking for help identifying somebody who had died many years earlier and they hadn't been able to identify that person. And they said they had reason to believe because they'd been doing some research on DNA and building a family tree using genetic genealogy that the deceased person was somehow related to Ms. Holmes or Mr. Holmes. And they asked for the DNA. And thinking that and wondering about any distant relatives who she had in Orlando and had lost touch with, Eleanor Holmes said yes and gave the DNA, thinking that's what it was going to be used for. A few days later, like you said in the intro, um, she found out that that was not the case.
0: And why were they suspected? I mean, why did they go up to Eleanor Holmes? Obviously, they had already tried okay. this method. They were already had some leads. And I guess this goes into the question, you know, why would they go through this tactic of trying to obtain her DNA? If they already had a suspect that could have possibly been their son, why didn't they trail him? Why didn't they get a discarded Coke can or something and obtain the DNA that way? Why did they go through the family?
1: That's a really good question. Um, target testing is... Pretty standard tactic within genetic genealogy to fill in gaps when you need one to find this unknown suspect who left DNA at the crime scene. And the real question is, how far do you go? How aggressive are you in using it? And I think this this example of using asking Eleanor Holmes for her DNA is an example of using it up until the very end of an investigation. So in retrospect, we now know from court filings that before they approached Eleanor Holmes, they suspected that it was someone very closely related, probably a child of Eleanor Holmes. But for some reason, and police have not explained this to me, they felt they needed to get her DNA to be sure. And so that last, she was the last piece in a lot of voluntary DNA collections that occurred in this case, more than a dozen, closer to 15. And Eleanor Holmes provided that last piece of genetic breadcrumb, if you will, that said, okay, we know now, now that we have her DNA, that it's either it's one of her two sons.
0: They had even obtained DNA samples from Eleanor's sister and aunt. So they were hot on the trail there. And just to be clear, police are allowed to mislead people to obtain certain evidence. Obtaining DNA is a little bit different. I think they have to have informed consent at least to have that. But as we keep talking about, this kind of blurs the line if we're fudging some of the facts to be able to get the DNA. So after they had the DNA and they said, okay, it is one of her sons possibly, they focused on the two sons that they had. I think Reginald was one of them and then Benjamin Holmes Jr. And then kind of how we described at the beginning, they tailed him, they obtained something from him. I think he discarded a cigar and a beer and then that's when they matched that DNA finally.
1: Correct. That's how all these cases end ultimately is collecting an actual single source DNA sample from the person they're targeting and matching it to that original crime scene DNA, and even going a step further, like they did in Benjamin Holmes Jr.'s case, which is to actually get then another sort of more pure sample through court order to make sure that it is a match. Um, I will. I want to say something about what you just said before too. It is legal, and courts have ruled repeatedly for police to obtain evidence through deception and DNA is no exception to that but I think what this case shows is technology and the power of DNA to tell about what our genetic makeup is it has become so more so much more powerful that I think cases like this are causing legal minds and ethical minds to want to rethink what how far police can go
0: and this leads us really for a slight look into the future you know we're talking about this case and how it kind of resolved to this end but Benjamin Holmes Jr. maintains his innocence. He's pleaded not guilty in this. There's a trial scheduled for June, and this could be the first time to explore how police conduct these types of investigations if the defense wants to throw that out there or maybe try to exclude some of this DNA evidence.
1: Yeah, the lawyer, Jerry Gurley, who represents Benjamin Holmes Jr., um, told me that he is exploring ways to try to get the DNA evidence thrown out. That would not be unusual for a good defense attorney to do. But he also acknowledged to me that the deception aspect of collecting the DNA probably isn't something that he can do because there really is no law and there's plenty of case law saying that it is proper. So he's looking for other avenues, and that's why I brought up that there are legal minds and, for instance, as I mentioned in the article, the ACLU wanting to bring new challenges to that, the ability of police to obtain DNA in covert ways.
0: John Shuby, reporter at NBC News Digital. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank
2: you.
1: Local health officials are in the lead, but in the cases this weekend and this week that emerged as a, uh, as you said, a community uh, infection, uh, we send CDC officials in to work very closely to identify where they potentially were exposed to the coronavirus. And uh, that aggressive effort is underway.
0: Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. The COVID-19 coronavirus continues to take the world by storm. There's new cases that were reported here in the United States. There's an Illinois health worker, a Rhode Island tourist, two Washington state men in their 60s, and this is all after somebody in Washington state was the first recorded death in the United States. A lot of people have been turning to the administration for a proper response. The president has been kind of uh, taking some heat. He put Vice President Mike Pence in charge of the federal response. But Ginger, tell us how this has been playing out for them.
2: That's right. We're starting to see cases pop up across the United States including the potential of some cases where the people who have it do not have known contact with someone who had the disease, which means it's called a community spread. It's it's spreading to the community. And that makes people nervous. And so we have seen an increasing look to the federal government, to the president, to see what he's going to do. And you're right, the president has taken a lot of heat, in part because of the messaging around his response. We see the government sort of doing its thing, doing what we would expect it to be doing at this time. The CDC putting out warnings, giving people guidance, tracking these cases, the NIH trying to work on developing treatments and even potentially a vaccine down the road. But President Trump has called it a hoax, a Democratic hoax. He later said that just the criticism of him was a hoax and not the disease itself. But that prompted more criticism that he was downplaying the risks here and downplaying the seriousness. And we're seeing what I think is the president expressing some frustration that the stock market fell. The largest amount it's fallen since the 2008 financial crisis. He very much measures the health and success of the country based on the Dow Jones average. And investors worried about a global pandemic that seems to be inevitable at this point have had a big sell-off. President Trump wanted to try to stop that, but instead maybe stoked some concerns by trying to continue to insist that it was no big deal.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is definitely a tough situation to be in. Really, all this points to is the state of readiness that we were in. You're never going to know when a big pandemic is coming, even though coronavirus has kind of been around for a while and it's been spreading all over. But these community cases where they're being spread, those are the scary ones because they just don't know. Those are difficult to track. And it's really the response that we are going to have after this. I know they had requested some 2.5 billion dollars in spending to help combat that. A lot of people said that was inadequate. So still a lot of work to be done on this.
2: There is. And, and it looks like they're going to have a deal with Congress to appropriate money that both sides feel is enough to cover sort of handling this immediate response, handling research and development to try to make this not be as bad as it potentially could be. But, you know, we're in an election year and we have one of the most divisive presidents we've ever had in the history of America, who is not afraid to say what's on his mind. So it's not surprising that this has very quickly become a bit of a political fight. And that we see both sides sort of retreating to their corners, even as the government, as we've said, the CDC, the NIH, the funding mechanisms that will keep them rolling, continue to function to try to do what they can to prevent this from from becoming worse.
0: Let's move on to South Carolina and the primary they just had. Former Vice President Joe Biden came out with a huge win there. I think he had 48 percent. The next person was Bernie Sanders with about 19 percent. This was the big win that Joe Biden needed to give him that momentum going into Super Tuesday.
2: That's right. Joe Biden scored a a large win in South Carolina. There had been questions about whether his campaign was over after he failed to perform well in Iowa and New Hampshire, but seemed to pick up some steam in Nevada where he finished second and then big win in South Carolina. He won every county in South Carolina. That is an not something we saw Bernie Sanders do in either Nevada or New Hampshire uh, when he won those two states.
0: I think they said uh, he won three of five of every African-American vote there as well. So that firewall for him really did hold up. And even, you know, this is coming after reports of Tom Steyer's pulling votes away. People are pulling votes away from him. And then he still hit it big there. The big question now is who starts to drop out from there? Obviously, Tom Steyer, dropped out. He said he doesn't see a pathway to the nomination. But this puts a lot of pressure on Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, who are kind of in this moderate lane with Joe Biden.
2: That's right. Both Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar spoke after the results came in on Saturday night, and neither said they would be dropping out. But there was reports Saturday night and Sunday morning that Pete Buttigieg was studying his path forward, looking to see what path he had. We're in a very narrow window that Primary on Saturday, Super Tuesday, only a few days later. But a candidate withdrawing can help someone that they might, their supporters might be voting for instead. And so it's not Tuesday yet. We could still see a change, but that seems unlikely. These candidates have already campaigned in these states. They've already spent money in these states. It's not going to cost them anything to keep going for two more days. But I would be surprised if we get to Wednesday or Thursday without the field narrowing, maybe even potentially a good deal after Super Tuesday.
0: It's always been all about the delegates, but even more, a sense of urgency to claim a larger number of delegates. With the win in South Carolina, Joe Biden came pretty close to Bernie Sanders, but he's still well behind him. And you go to Super Tuesday in the big states of California and Texas, Bernie Sanders is polling better than Joe Biden. So it's still going to be tough to get that number of delegates.
2: That's right. So Sunday afternoon, still waiting on some of the delegates to be awarded in South Carolina, but Joe Biden at 51, Bernie Sanders at 56. That's very close together. But when you look ahead, as you mentioned, there are more than 200 delegates available in Texas. There are 415 delegates available in California. Bernie Sanders leads in the polls in both of those states. And I've seen estimates where Bernie Sanders could end up with two or 300 more delegates than Joe Biden, given the ability to win delegates in those two big states. We had polls a year ago that had Joe Biden winning California, so it's not impossible for him to surge back. And if you look at the polls in South Carolina, they really moved a lot at the very end. It went from an almost tie after the New Hampshire primary to a week later, seeing Joe Biden win by by 20 points. I mean, that's more than 20 points. That's a big shift in a little bit of time. And so we, we could see polling in these places where right now. Sanders is leading, that people were seeing in polls, too, is people making up their minds at the last minute. Could be a lot of movement in either direction as we approach Super Super Tuesday.
0: You mentioned how the polls were really close until the very end there. A lot of people are pointing to Congressman uh, James Clyburn, who really kind of gave that endorsement to former Vice President Joe Biden and really pushed him over the edge, at least with the African-American support. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of a lot of times people say, oh, nobody cares who endorses who. But in this case, it seemed to have really mattered.
2: It does seem to have moved the needle a lot for Joe Biden. Clyburn is a very well respected politician in the state of South Carolina. Voters listened to them, our exit polls told us that his endorsement was a factor in a number of people's decision making. And look, we've seen in the last 24 hours right before South Carolina and maybe 48 hours into the Sunday afterwards, other politicians coming forward and endorsing Joe Biden. Senator Kane in Virginia, we've seen a number of other Bobby Scott, a House member of Virginia, that's a that's a Super Tuesday state, um, some other uh, politicians, current and former across the state. And those those endorsements can make a last minute deal, especially if uh, those endorsers, as we saw Tim Kaine doing on Saturday, quickly hit the road and start campaigning for him. Um, They can sway minds among voters in their own states.
0: The last question I wanted to talk about real quick was just the Trump administration got two big blows to them with regards to immigration Judges ruled that the administration's wait in Mexico plan wouldn't be able to go through, although hours later they put a pause on that uh, just because they need a they have so many working parts in place already. But they said that the migrant protection protocols was invalid on this front. So that's another issue for the Trump administration to have to handle.
2: That's right. The Trump administration has been trying to keep migrants from coming across the border. We also, getting back to our first topic, heard President Trump suggest he could shut the border down to keep the spread of disease, uh, particularly the the border between the U.S. and Mexico, even though there are more cases of coronavirus in Canada than there are in Mexico. But this is a front that he's going to continue to fight on. He wants that border to not have anyone coming across, including migrants, which the court said uh, are entitled when seeking refugee to, refuge to come. Into the country.
0: Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright. And engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez and this was your Daily Dive.